0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
1: Each week, Allison and I like to try to introduce you to new podcasts that we think you'll enjoy, since we know you share our true crime obsession.
2: Yes, and this week, that podcast is coming to you straight from the UK. So if you love accented voices giving you your weekly dose of true crime...
1: Just a very different accent from ours.
2: Yeah, 100%. Then we know that you will love Persons Unknown. Here's a bit about the show from the host, John Dobson himself.
3: Persons Unknown is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and disappearances. My name is John. I'm based in Wales and cover cases from Wales, the rest of the UK and the wider world. Each episode tells the story of a cold case, from the original timeline right through to recent developments. The content is based on thorough research and all the evidence is presented in a clear and engaging way. There's no banter, but a respectful narration of what happened and any theories. A new episode is released every other Monday, with occasional bonus episodes. There are already plenty of episodes to binge. Find Persons Unknown wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: There's something special about growing up in a small town. And there's something even more special about growing up in a small coal mining town. The sound of a train whistle blowing on a crystal clear night, waking you up from your sleep, the smell of coal burning hot on a snowy winter night, the feel of the slippery train tracks under your feet as you struggle to gain your balance, the coal truck zooming past school at recess, horns blaring at all the waving kids is hard to beat. Even harder to beat is the sense of community that comes from a small coal town. You flourish together and you struggle together. When coal is booming, families send kids to school with full bellies and packed lunches. When coal's slow, those same families send their kids to school with empty bellies and dirty clothes because sometimes mom and dad can't afford to pay the bills. We see each other in the best of times and the worst of times, but no matter what, we greet each other with a smile. I've seen families lose everything when their coal mine closed. I've seen my own family go without money to pay their workers' wages when the coal business is slow. I've seen the best of people in my small coal town. And when that sense of community is even stronger, as when one of us dies. We all feel that loss. Funeral homes are packed as we all gather to say our final goodbyes. We send home casserole dishes and sandwich trays and desserts. We band together. Nothing rocks a small town like death. I remember vividly when I was a freshman in high school, a senior died. Our, our entire community stopped. Schools were closed. Businesses closed. Everyone was there to pay their respects and cry along with his family, whether they knew him personally or not. Death hits hard in a small town, especially the unexpected deaths. What hits a small town even harder is a brutal, and I mean brutal, murder. This is the case of Eddie Brown. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. it's our favorite time
2: yes it is
1: shout out time since i got to do them
2: all on my own last week
1: yeah
2: i don't guess remind it's me
1: <laughs> oh yeah
2: oh yeah that's bringing up bad memories for maggie's computer i guess it's only fair that i let you start this time
1: Okay, so our first shout out goes to Marcy, who wrote, quote, I just found your podcast not too long ago, and I'm hooked. Currently been w- listening to all of your episodes. You guys are amazing. Keep up the great work. I can't wait to sip my coffee and hear what's brewing next. You know what? I
2: love that reference to one of our taglines. Marcy sounds like my kind of gal. Me too. I like her. her. little reference. Yeah. Our next shout-out comes from Lauren, and this is my friend Lauren from Facebook. Aww. Yes, and she wrote, quote, I'm happy to be a patron because I love y'all. I look forward to listening each week. This is by
1: far my favorite podcast. We love you too, Lauren. And Sleuthhounds, if you haven't yet... You all need to join Lauren's true crime Facebook group called Cold Case Discussion Group. Yes, please do that for her. Please join Cold Case Discussion Group. And our final shout out goes to Rhonda Norris, who wrote, love the podcast. Thank you, Rhonda. Yes, thank you. And
2: if you would like to get immediate access to bonus content, learn a little bit more about Maggie and me and hear your name read on our show, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash coffee and cases podcast, all one word. And if you are already one of our Patreon members, but you have yet to fill in the shout out form Don't forget to do so because we want to announce your name or nickname or anonymous name Mm -hmm. and celebrate you. All
1: right. So we are going to go ahead and get started. And I'm just going to let all of our listeners know that I literally cannot speak today. (laughs) In the introduction and the shout outs alone, we have more edits from my voice, than we typically have for an entire episode. This is true. So,
2: just gonna it's let okay. y'all know ahead we of time. We all struggle at times. Yeah.
1: So, words are hard. This is just one of those times. <laughs> t- <laughs> okay. Anyways, so today's case takes place in Kincaid, West Virginia, which is a super tiny small town. Okay. Like, probably one of the tiniest that oh. we've talked about. Okay, um, It's ex- an extremely, not that any of our cases aren't sad, but this mm-hmm. one is sad. And I'm not sure if it's because, like, the town is so small or if it this case happened nearly 30 years ago. But, like, part of the reason it's so sad is that this case hasn't received a lot of attention. There were, like maybe four or five articles that I were like I was able to find most of them all used the crime stopper article which is going to be the one I reference the most to write mm-hmm. their articles and then there were no podcasts that covered this case wow. and like one maybe 20 minute long like YouTube video that I found
2: wow so this yeah. is, when we say we cover lesser-known cases, we cover lesser-known cases. Yes,
1: yes. And as I mentioned, Kincaid is a tiny town. So small, in fact, that when you Google Kincaid, West Virginia, like, the Wikipedia entry is, like, two paragraphs. Sentences. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> very tiny. The population is only around, like, 620. Oh, okay. Okay. So small. And this is like super similar to the size of my hometown. Mm -hmm. And they are similar in more ways than just population. Because Kincaid um, and Virgie, where I grew up, were both founded around the same time. And they both flourished when the coal industry was at its high. Mm. And like since then have kind of been struggling a little. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, this town was actually like erected or whatever you would say when the Kincaid family moved from old like an old Virginia and settled in West Virginia. Okay. Um, and they were like Scottish and Irish, which is mm-hmm. super prevalent in right Appalachia. This area of the country. Yeah. Yep. And so they even to this day, the Kincaid family is a prominent family in this town. Like, they've stayed there. Okay. And I think the article I read on Crime Stoppers summed up Kincaid, West Virginia the best. It says, To a stranger passing through, Kincaid seemed the quintessential small neighborhood. The central features of the community were churches, the post office, a small store, and a Seneca station. Several churches in the community still held old-fashioned suppers in their whitewashed wooden buildings where members congregated to strengthen their faith in the face of a changing world. Men still gathered at the woods' quick mark to trade hunting stories and share community gossip. Children still waited for the school bus inside Seneca Station under the protective eye of Eddie Brown. And Allison, obviously, today's case is about Eddie Brown. Okay. So two notes.
2: Number one, do you know what? I have lived my whole life and said Sunoco.
1: Is it Sunoco?
2: I have no idea.
1: Like, because the video that I watched... <laughs> said what? Sunoco? Yeah. I've always, my whole life, said Sunoco. Well, to me, I wanted to say Sunoco.
2: I have no idea. We're so, calling it Listeners, if you know how to pronounce that gas station, please tell us, because... I wonder if this is like tomato, tomato,
1: or I wonder if envelope, or I wonder if my brain is just so fried from teaching today (laughs) that I heard the wrong pronunciation
2: of this gas station. I, I honestly have no idea. But the other side note that I wanted to make is, yeah, this town sounds very quaint and like, it is steeped in tradition mm-hmm. and a strong, like you mentioned in your intro, like a strong sense of community. So, obviously, this Eddie Brown was like a protector.
1: Yes. Right, he, if, they're,
2: if he's watching over the kids.
1: Yes, he was, I feel like, just from what I've read, a huge part of this town like mm. one of those like fundamental people when you think mm-hmm. of a small town mm-hmm. you know who everyone knows yes eddie was at the time of this case 72 years old and he had been a lifelong resident of the town and he was known to bring a smile to everyone's face he wasn't super tall. He was like five foot ten inches, so like pretty average. Mm-hmm. And he weighed about two hundred and fifty pounds. So, okay. a lot of the kids and some of the stuff that I've read that are now adults, obviously, but said upon like first meeting Eddie, they were kind of intimidated because he's like you know kind of like this husky, mm-hmm. like, brute-looking a man. Oh, well, especially for little kids too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But he didn't have a single mean bone in his body. Oh, I read that his sweet smile and his warm eyes would unravel any type of like this sense of like intimidation that you might have. And like mm-hmm. reveal this loving and gentle heart that mm. was the essence of Eddie.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, in 1992, Eddie was a staple at the service station that I mentioned earlier where he worked. And he actually worked there for 14 years prior to 1992. Um, and he actually worked super long hours. Like, sometimes 14 hours a day, but on average around 12 hours a day. Gosh, that's a lot. It is a lot. And, like, you would think, like... because. At first, when I was reading this, like, this this isn't so much of a thing now, but, like, I feel like when we were younger, the, like, greeters at Walmart, you know, Mm -hmm. that had, like, the little stickers, Mm -hmm. they were always, like, old people. Mm -hmm. And it always made me so depressed to think that one day, like, I might not have enough paid into retirement that I would have to be, like, a Walmart greeter, which is still possibly true, but, you know, and like that's kind of what I thought of Eddie. Yeah. Like he's like, struggling, does he need money. Yeah, yeah, and he needs money. But according to like th- the four articles that I read, um, Eddie wasn't hurting for money. Everyone that knew Eddie, and believe me, Allison, everybody in this town knew Eddie. Mm-hmm. Knew that he actually carried a large wad, and we'll talk about how large that is, of cash in his right shirt pocket. Why would
2: he carry it there?
1: I feel like that's like, well, one, you're in a small town. And two, I just feel like that's such a generational thing.
2: Oh, like not wanting to put it in a bank or something? Yeah, and
1: like to always have like large amounts of cash on a person, you know? hmm I guess debit cards weren't popular in his town in 1992 like they are <laughs> yeah, for me right, now. Right, right. So, is he carrying this, like, so people see how much money he has? Oh, no. So, like, Eddie also is super humble. And this is why, like, Eddie's generation will literally be the greatest generation. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, like, people knew about the money in his pocket not because he like went around bragging that i have like you know five hundred dollars in my pocket or right, whatever right but because he was so generous like he was known to pull that money out and help anyone who needed it so if like uh, mommy couldn't buy diapers he was pulling out that cash to buy her diapers Aww. if somebody couldn't fill up their car with gas he was paying to give you a full tank of gas andy i know like, and this is our case
2: person.
1: Yes. Oh, yes. And like, this you, world just needs to stop. I know. And you'll like, you'll fall in love with him. And like, I wanted to be like his grandkid, or like, I wanted to grow up in this town and have an Eddie. Mm. Because he just seems, seemed so just at his core good. Mm hmm. And he lived a very simple life. I read that Eddie still at this time lived in the family home with his younger sister. And Allison, I'm sure you have gathered that why Eddie worked at the service station he worked at. It wasn't for the money, obviously. But he it's worked. Because I guarantee you that's where everybody comes. Yeah. He worked there for the people interaction. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I could totally see that. Right, because he's a helper. People went there. He wanted to be somewhere that he could help people if they needed help at, like, the gas station. Mm-hmm. It was like, I'm sure, as in most towns, there's, like, you know, a like a hub of activity. And I feel mm-hmm. like that was probably where the majority of the gossip and everything was spilled was in this service station. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one thing that was really sweet about him is that he actually like watched over the children. They would come the ones that rode the bus that, you know, picked them up near there, they would come into the service station in the early mornings to escape the cold or the rain or whatever. And he would like be there to watch them, give them a piece of candy, Aww. greet them in the morning, you know, just being like literally the blind person. person. Yeah. yeah. And um, he actually reminds me, this is a little off topic, of this man that I grew up knowing from my church. Mm -hmm. Um, His name was Johnny, and he always had a smile to offer or like a tight squeezing hug if you needed one. He Mm -hmm. was like the type of man you respected because his presence almost demanded you to respect him. Uh-huh. like You know what I mean? Yeah. He was a colonel in the U.S. Army. He was in World War II. He was in the Korean War. And, like, to me, growing up, like, Johnny was the definition of what a man should be oh like a deacon in church like just everything and like he was known for like mailing you letters letting you know he was praying for you slipping cash into your hand during church when you were starting a new semester of college and saying this is for your books oh I know and he would like during like the welcome him and like where people were shaking hands he'd like sneak a piece of candy in your hand when he shook your hand I love that (laughs) the best type of person. And I really think that Eddie was the same. Someone Mm -hmm. to leave a lasting impression on every single person that he came in contact with. Right.
0: You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
1: So as I mentioned, obviously, most of my research came from just a few articles. So I actually use Crime Stoppers the most because, like I said, the majority of the other ones also use this Crime Stoppers article. So mm-hmm. Right. But it stated as the decades of the 1980s drew to an end, the way of life was changing in Kincaid. And I think that was really the same for the rest of the country as well. Like, I think we kind of had a shift in, like, morals and yeah, life in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Like, I feel like life became even more fast paced. And mm-hmm. small communities like Virgie and Kincaid became hotspots for drugs because unemployment rates mm-hmm. grew dramatically. Poverty lines became blurred. And we mm-hmm. know that, you know, those two things go hand in hand. Right. Um, Once I took a train ride through, it was like parts of Virginia and Pike County. And like, if you've grown up in deep Appalachia, and it's not a- Appalachia, Right. East Appalachia, right. <laughs> um, you know that like there are so many stereotypes that surround mm-hmm. that area.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And like, I guess where I grew up, like I had heard that there were kids that I went to school with that didn't have like floors, like their d- floors were dirt. And this was like 2000s. You know,
2: wow.
1: But like when I went on this train ride, I was probably 28 ish.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It literally shook me to my core. Like people, and this is coming from a girl who grew up in a super tiny house that had like leaking roofs, rotting mm-hmm. floor. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I was not living in a mansion, but my house right. looked like a mansion compared to families that I saw literally living in tents. Camp, or like, run down campers and trailers that were like halfway falling in.
2: Mm, that breaks my heart.
1: And, like, I had, you know, like, we obviously have heard about that type of poverty, right. but I didn't realize that it was so close to home. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that type of living style isn't limited to Pike County or just Appalachia. Right. But in Appalachia, as more and more people lost their jobs, and, in the, and even in Kincaid, West Virginia, poor living conditions spread. Right. And Kincaid was one of those places that were affected by that. hmm So I read that rundown campers were brought in and parked um, in the hauler, because we don't say hollow. No, we near, say hollow. Yeah, yeah. Near Camp Branch Road, where Eddie had lived. And Crime Stopper said that the, like, longstanding neighbors, so people that had grown up in Kincaid, were complaining because with these campers coming in, um, People had began partying. People were coming in doing drug deals. They were drinking, mm-hmm. and so like the town was kind of shifting.
2: Mm-hmm. The small town's really struggling. Mm-hmm. It sounds like.
1: And community leaders formed a plan of action. They worked with the sheriff's department. They set up a neighborhood watch program, um, but the drug usage increased and the crime mm-hmm. rates increased. And in the fall of 1991, so the story we're on today is 92, Mm
2: -hmm. residents
1: were scared by, like, a barrage of burglaries, break-ins, and windows being shot out.
2: Shot out?
1: Yeah. So,
2: like. Oh, yeah. This small town, this is.
1: Almost things like, almost like you would hear, like, in a big city. Right. Nothing you would think for a
2: small town.
1: Right. Police stepped up the patrols in the area, though, and eventually they did catch, like, a juvenile who they believed to be, like, the leader of this almost kind of gang that Mm -hmm. was responsible for this activity. Mm -hmm. Um, So, obviously, we're in a small community, and news quickly spread. So, the news that this guy was arrested quickly spread throughout Kincaid, and I know that there was a wave of relief for everyone, right? you know, thinking that now that this this guy's arrested, yeah, yeah, this will stop. But that wave soon came crashing down because on January 22nd, 1992, um, something happened in Kincaid that to this day, the community is still struggling with. Wow.
2: So we're like only, gosh, barely over 30 years. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. So Eddie, being the ever-giving person that he was, woke up. Every day, not just on the twenty second, but mm-hmm. every day, woke up bright and early to go to jo- go to his job at the service station. Yeah,
2: because he's got to watch over the kids,
1: right? And the amazing thing about one of the amazing things about Eddie is that um, the gas station didn't ha- technically open till six a.m. But every single morning, every single morning. On the dot, Eddie would open the service station at 4 a.m., so two hours prior to it being required to be open. He was there So why did it. he
2: do that? Because that's pretty early.
1: Again, because it's so freaking sweet. Because Eddie? <laughs> yes, because he said that the other service station in the area didn't open until 6 a.m. And that he would reason with his family and friends, like, what if a minor was headed home from work? Or headed to work and needed something for lunch. Like he wanted Aww. something to be open. Where would the children go to wait for the bus if the station wasn't open? Aww. Because, you know, school buses run early. Oh, and they yeah. Stayed, they stayed inside to take shelter or whatever. And if he didn't open early, like, where would they wait?
2: Oh, so he <laughs> literally, everything he does is for other people.
1: Yes. And he would get out of bed. By 1 o'clock in the morning, <gasps> like one thirty in the morning.
2: That's to, dedication.
1: to get to work. And this man's working 12 hours.
2: Oh, man.
1: I know. So he would get up at one thirty. His sister, who does not get enough credit, and I'll talk about it in a minute, would get up to prepare him breakfast. Oh, And he would embark on the one and a half mile long journey to the service station. And Mm -hmm. he didn't own a car, so (gasps) he he walked the whole way. Yes,
2: yes. Man, this the people in this town need to buy. They should have bought him a car.
1: He needs a statue.
2: Yeah, he does.
1: And again, this reminds me of Virgie. Like it's so tiny, we had no like red lights. That's not a thing. And we had (laughs) a bank, a post office, a library, a grocery store, two service stations. And now a dollar store, which was is a new addition. But if you lived close enough to any of those, you could walk to all of those. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I can only assume like Eddie's hauler was close to town because, you know, if you're 72, a mile and a half is far to walk. But like if you're right. young, a mile and a half wouldn't really be that bad. Right. But. And he's walk. walking this in the winter.
2: This is January.
1: Yes. I did read that sometimes there was like a family that um delivered the newspapers. And, like, uh-huh. sometimes they he would accept rides from them, but most of the time he just walked. Aww. Yep. And that morning, Eddie left his house, and it was brutally cold that morning. He left in a hoodie with the hood up, a jacket that also had a hood, so he had that up, his little pants, and also a baseball cap to kind of keep the wind from being able to get to his face. Mm-hmm. He grabbed his flashlight and went out into the dark with his little flashlight lighting the way to set out on foot to his job. Wow. Yes. And like I said, I want to give Eddie's sister some credit because I love my brother. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that I would have woken up before 4 a.m. Or right. even or even at 4 a.m. Right. To make him breakfast and see him off to work. Yeah. Like, I just would have been like, grab a Pop-Tart, peace and blessings, have a great day. <laughs> like, peace and blessings to you. Yeah, don't yeah. wake me up. Yeah, This is like a whole family of givers. Yes. So. And she did that every morning that he went to work. Like, that, the January 22nd just wasn't a special morning. That was every day. She would do that for him. God bless the Brown family. Yes. Their mommies and daddies raised them right. Mm-hmm. So, she fixes him breakfast, he goes off to work, and she would later recall that, as normal, she went back to bed, because, yes.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) But on her way to her room, she thought she heard muffled voices outside. Oh, no. I'm brushing it off like as if it were nothing, because again, it's one thirty you're probably sleep deprived, like we got a new puppy hounds, and so, um this morning at like five, she started crying, so of course, Anthony walked her because he wanted her, so he gets to walk her when it's five <laughs> o'clock in the morning. And then I was like, just like just let her sleep in bed for the hour before we have to get up to go to work. right? Which yeah. was a mistake because she threw up on me. Oh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to get up and take care of that. And then I was like, you know what? It's 30 more minutes. I can still sleep. Like, I'm going back to bed. <laughs> so, yeah. like, yeah. I'm sure like me, she was like, you know what? I'm yeah. just going to bed. That was it's nothing. nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Right. But I think now she probably wonders if she had gone outside to check on what she heard would things have turned out differently? Oh, no. And neighbors would also go on to recall being, like, jarred out of out of their sleep by dogs barking, which was out of the norm, because the only person stirring in town would have been Eddie, and no dogs barked at Eddie because... He's Eddie. Because he's Eddie and everyone loves him, even animals. Yeah. Yeah. And so they too are left to wonder what would have happened if they had only gone outside to check what the dogs were barking at.
2: Oh, no.
1: Within just 30 minutes of leaving home, something went horribly wrong on Eddie's morning commute. In that short 30-minute time frame. guesstimate that he his sister thinks that he left home around two o'clock in the morning. So within thirty minutes or right around two thirty Okay. Someone acted so violently that it ended the life of the ever giving and loving Eddie Brown. Oh, no. See, I don't want him hurt and then to know, know. that it was
2: violent. Yeah. And <sighs> it's very sad the way that he dies, I think. Oh, no. I don't like, think I'm prepared.
1: I know. This, like, old people, I love old people. Like, there's just something about them I think is just so sweet. hmm And, like, this just, this story, and all of our stories are sad, but, like, Old people are right up there with babies, like right. Protect the old people. Our story picks up, so remember, we're in that like thirty-minute time frame. Okay. When the former service station owner, Esley Bills, saw Eddie unlocking the service station, and he would tell investigators that Eddie almost had like this deer in headlights look. That's weird. And he just, like, chucked it up to thinking maybe, like, his car coming unexpectedly down the road had maybe startled Eddie because it's like 2.30 in the morning, right? Okay. And so he just keeps going on towards home, um, but would obviously later feel a twinge of regret. Um, He did tell investigators that he glanced at his clock and noticed the time was 2.39 a.m. So almost, you know, we're within that 30-minute time period.
2: Oh, goodness. So, we he at least makes it to the service station, but he looks... Startled. Dazed. Yeah. Okay. And,
1: like, the whole time frame will also kind of come into question. Okay. So, the Marshall family regularly traveled throughout Kincaid at that time of night because they delivered the newspaper.
2: Oh, right, so, makes
1: sense. Yeah. And they had grown accustomed to seeing this... Um, service station open on their Mm -hmm. return journey because eddie was preparing for the coming day Mm -hmm. so they're on their way home um, but this morning was different so instead of the service station like the lights being turned on there's a warm glow welcoming people um it was in complete darkness which is not how it's supposed to be right so looking abandoned they pulled in
2: Because Mm -hmm. this is
1: out of the norm. Right. And they realized that the service station actually wasn't abandoned. The door was standing open despite the fact that the lights were out. (laughs) Yeah. So, now they're obviously very concerned. Yeah. Because this was not like Eddie. This is out of the ordinary. So, they pull in to see what's going on. Um, As they enter the service station, they knew something was amiss. Inside, they found a man with his face covered in blood. <gasps> in fact, there was so much blood that the man was unrecognizable at first. Oh my gosh. So somebody had like beaten him? Yes. <gasps> Finally, the Marshals realized that the man who was bleeding on the floor was none other than the Eddie. They switched the lights on and they could not believe what they saw. The inside of the store was covered in blood and so was eddie he was confused and it looked like maybe he had wandered around the room and that's why there was blood everywhere he was holding like a what appeared to be a brown rag to his head in an attempt to stop the bleeding oh no and according to who killed eddie brown of kincaid west virginia he didn't seem to understand how much he was bleeding or how badly he was injured. He was so disoriented, he didn't hear the buzzing of the burglary alarm that was going off because he hadn't disabled the alarm. Oh gosh! And like, but I guess if they
2: hit him, maybe in his ear—I don't know if that could have damaged.
1: Or maybe, maybe he's lost so much blood, he's kind of oh gosh, a little dis- dis- yeah. But like he tells the marshals, "Like I'm fine." I don't need to go to the hospital. I fell on the railroad tracks. And like, you know, I'm okay. Mm. And they're like, I don't know. There's lots of blood everywhere. Right. Like, let's look at that. Yeah. wound that you're trying to get to stop bleeding. So they lowered the hood of his jacket and then they see even more blood than what they realized. Because remember he's wearing a hoodie. Well, a baseball cap, a hoodie, and then the hood of his jacket.
2: Oh. So
1: those thick double hoods that Eddie wore and the baseball cap that he was wearing had absorbed a lot of the blood from that head wound. Blood had actually run down his back and soaked into the two layers of clothing.
2: Oh my goodness.
1: So... Bewildered that, you know, Eddie is still bewildered. They finally convince him, like, you need to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And he allows them to drive him to Oak Hill Hospital. And his family quickly arrived to be by his side at the hospital. Wow. So my first thought, Allison, and probably yours and our listeners, is that someone came in with an intent to rob the store as he was opening it. Yeah, because
2: I would have thought that because the other guy who drove by at like two little after two didn't say anything about seeing blood and if right. he said that he looked bewildered then that means obviously he saw his face
1: right well
2: every which obviously knew. means he didn't fall on the railroad tracks on the way
1: right and everyone knew you know the robbery theory i think at first would make the most sense because everyone mm-hmm. knew what time he would arrive at work every day mm-hmm. um you know, in my mind, robbing the store is the most plausible. Um, but as the investigation evolved, it became clear that the intent was not to rob the service station, but to rob Eddie himself.
2: So they d- they took Eddie's money, but not the money from like the till and the gas station? I'll get there. Oh, OK.
1: So the first indication, according to the Crime Stopper, Stopper article, was that when x-rays were taken at the hospital, uh-huh. the doctor told Eddie's brother, Glenn, that his brother's skull looked like a, quote, roadmap of holes and fractures. <gasps> yes. That someone had hit Eddie so hard, it cracked his skull, and he had been hit more than once. Oh,
2: my goodness. Yeah. And this is Eddie. This is, yeah.
1: yeah, Eddie. When forensic experts examined the x-rays, it was determined that 72-year-old little Eddie had been struck at least four times with a sharp pointed object that had punctured his skull <gasps> with each blow.
2: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that is violent.
1: Yes. And, like, this doesn't give anything away, but, like, he didn't die instantly obviously mm-hmm. so like i can't imagine the amount of oh, pain that he was in right at the hospital eddie's clothes were turned over to his family which really didn't make sense to me because like yeah there could be hair fibers there could yeah, be DNA. especially if he's been attacked and you they know, know he's been attacked yeah. you know he's been attacked you know this isn't an accident But they were turned Uh. over, I read in that article, to his family. And um, do you remember what I said Eddie always carried on him? Yeah, big wad of cash. Yeah. And so when his family got his clothes back, do you want to guess what was missing from his pockets?
2: I'm going to guess a big wad of cash.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. His sister-in-law said that she knew he carried about $500 in his pocket. Yeah, that he gives to everybody else. I know that he doesn't even use for himself because he's Eddie. And all of that money was missing. Hmm. What his attacker did not find was the small amount of cash that he kept for himself in his other pocket, along with a pen, a piece of paper, and a tire gauge that he kept in case a customer needed help oh my to know how much tire pressure they had. So, Eddie was left, this is, to me, this is very interesting. Eddie was Mm -hmm. left-handed, right? So, he always kept the money that he helped people with in his right shirt pocket, right? Because that makes the most sense Mm -hmm. if you're Mm left-handed to grab. He kept his personal money and pen and stuff in his left pocket because he didn't get Mm -hmm. in that pocket as often. So, to me, if They knew. yes.
2: Yes, because they, they only saw him get out of that right pocket.
1: Right, because they knew either they knew one that Eddie was left-handed because they've on, and they've only seen him get out of the right, you know, the right pocket.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like that, that has to be what it is because naturally, if you're robbing someone, you're going to check both pockets because you're not going to know mm-hmm. which pocket they're naturally sticking their money. Right. in. And right. it's rare to be left-handed. So this person had had to have an interaction with Eddie, Mm -hmm. or multiple interactions in which Eddie probably gave this person money or whatever. Oh my gosh! His pocket.
2: To think that he could have helped this person, and then this is what they do. Yeah,
1: yeah. I feel it. I feel in my heart that he had to have at least one encounter, and helped this person at least one time because how else would they know? hmm That he was someone yeah. they could target to get money from. Yeah. What's I think amazing, you're right. So, Eddie, we obviously know, is amazing, right? mm mm-hmm. like, like, he's Eddie. What's even more amazing is that given the extent of his wounds, that mm-hmm. Eddie was able to walk at all. Mm-hmm. But Eddie was not attacked at the gas station.
3: <gasps>
1: what? And Eddie walked to the service station after being attacked. Oh, my gosh.
2: Yeah. But then, mm, I don't know about that sighting at 2-something then.
1: Yeah, that's how I was Do you come saying. back to that? Yeah.
2: Okay, yeah. Because yeah, I'm not feeling that.
1: Yeah, we come back to it. Okay. Um, So investigators first believed that Eddie was attacked during a robbery of the service station. Mm -hmm. But the fact that no money, as you mentioned, was taken from the, like, you know, cash register Mm -hmm. or whatever, Mm -hmm. only money taken directly from Eddie, um, opened their eyes to other possibilities. And then to further add to this skepticism of the robbery theory was the fact that Eddie's knees were bruised, like severely bruised. And he had gravel, like, because, you know, like when you're little and you fall on mm-hmm. like a gravel road, mm-hmm. you get it stuck in your knee. Oh, knees. yeah. Yeah. So, he had gravel stuck in his knees and in, like, the material of his trousers.
2: Mm. So And there's gravel by railroad tracks.
1: And you know where there wasn't gravel?
2: At the gas station. At the gas station. Mm.
1: So, could it have been that he was attacked? Because, I mean, there's a railroad track that runs— right through where I grew up. And so a lot of the times when we would walk, my mom would walk me home, like I would beg to walk on the railroad tracks because I was obsessed with trying Mm -hmm. to balance on the, like, you know, Mm -hmm. the the balance beam, I called it. Mm -hmm. So could it have been, he was maybe walking on the railroad tracks that night and someone was there to attack him on the railroad tracks. Mm. We know that the blows to his head came from behind so, investigators speculated that he was hit and then fell to the ground, thus the bruising and gravels in his knee on his knees
2: because and he could have been disoriented from the very first hit,
1: yeah, and like he said he tripped over the railroad tracks, and yeah. tripping over them after being hit the first time is probably all that he can remember, mm-hmm, so really that.
0: And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.
1: Even more evidence was found to support this personal attack theory because his flashlight... That the one he faithfully carried to light Mm -hmm. his way to work, was found the next morning by his neighbors, and the flashlight was found only about 75 feet from the Browns' property.
2: Oh, so he didn't make it far at all.
1: No. And the lens was broken and cracked, as if the flashlight had been thrown violently to the ground. Now,
2: oh, now it makes sense. The muffled voices, the dogs barking.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I never read in the, like, one article, basically, that I found right. um, what they named the official crime scene. But I feel like that would almost have to be it. Mm-hmm. Sadly, though, like, Eddie is admitted to the hospital. He never regained full consciousness. So he was never able to recall and relay to investigators what happened the night he was attacked. So we're just kind of forced to make our own determinations. So he's like
2: alive for a while, but he can't like remember anything.
1: I'm assuming like a completely unresponsive type alive right now. Mm -hmm. Crime Stoppers did say that despite the fact that Eddie was a large man, even though he was old, right? He was a large man. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And he could have attempted to fend off any attack that he would have seen coming from the front. Oh, yeah. Because he was still pretty healthy, but he had mm-hmm. no defensive wounds. Oh. So somebody obviously did come up behind him in the darkness, struck him not once but four times, and he had no time to fight back. Mm. Another question was one that you brought up, Allison, and that is the time frame. Right. We don't really know for sure what time Eddie left home because his sister told investigators that he typically left home between 2 and 2.30. Remember, he's up at like, what do we say, one thirty? Right. And we know he lived a mile and a half away, which isn't a super long time, but like for anybody to make it walking a mile and a half in like Thirty, what was it like? Thirty nine, thirty six minutes, right. something like that. Is not very possible, especially if you're right. seventy two. Yeah. yeah. And if Bill saw him that morning, you know,
2: just a few minutes after two yeah, thirty,
1: it would not be possible for him to have walked that far. So there's only two things, right? Either someone gave him a ride, which seems unlikely, because surely they would have noticed that he was hurt and would have taken him to the hospital. Right. Or we have some time somewhere is mixed up.
2: I just, but uh, here's why I still struggle with this sighting, because I feel like if this person noticed Eddie enough... To say like, oh, this is abnormal, he looks disoriented, Mm -hmm. then that's something we talk about memory all the time. That is something that you would remember. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But if he looked at Eddie at all in the face, he would have seen blood.
1: Well, I'm wondering, like, because I didn't read what time the Marshall family went by was it mm-hmm. closer to 4 a.m so had he been there almost two hours and that's why he was so covered in blood like mm. did the man that passed him bills um was that so soon after the attack that it the blood hadn't had time to like soak through all the layers that eddie had on mm. maybe so maybe that. like the time in between the two sightings was longer than what we want to think that it was. Yeah, yeah. Because then again, but okay, even still, we're assuming that he walks a mile and a half injured in like 36 minutes or whatever it was.
2: Which is wild because that's not very long.
1: And you would assume if someone did drive him to the gas station, not realizing that he's hurt. I mean, Mm -hmm. I guess maybe they just... Didn't know him and they thought they picked up like a senile old man who was just really mm-hmm. confused.
0: hmm
1: Like, if that had happened, you would want to say, if they n- heard this story on the news or read it in the paper, that they would come forward and say, like, holy oh, yeah, crap, I, I gave him, him a ride. Yeah. But nobody came think. forward and said that. Hmm. Eddie's family pulled their resources and offered a reward for information regarding Eddie's attack. Obviously, Allison, were in a small town, so rumors quickly started pouring into the tip line at the station. Um, Investigators did track down every single lead. And the Browns Mm -hmm. did continue to push for answers and urged people to come forward. But not, there wasn't a lead I read that really gave any substantial information to investigators i'm guessing
2: though that most people believed it was one of the newer people to town
1: oh yeah many suspected that it was like the frequent visitors to this new like party camper scene near eddie's home who had attacked mm-hmm. him um you know people do crazy things when they need and money
2: parties might be winding down or still going at one oh. thirty in the morning
1: yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. At the time, he would be walking. hmm And if you're needing your next buzz and you pass mm-hmm. sweet little Eddie. Who you, you know has cash. And you typically wouldn't hurt him, but you're tweaking or you need money because you need to get high. hmm He would be a very easy target. hmm So people did suspect that... It was one of the people at the parties. More rumors onto that theory said that one of the people who was a regular there, like, never came back and actually moved to Florida shortly after Uh Eddie's attack. Determined to follow every lead, deputies traveled to Florida to interview this man. And at first, he tried to avoid them, but later met with them and actually was able to give proof that he was not in the area that night darn it. I know. And one by one, clues led nowhere and the trail grew cold. Wow. There was one thing to me and to investigators that stuck out about Eddie's case. And so this brown rag that he was Mm -hmm. using was actually a blouse. What? Yeah. So this blouse was assumed to be brown and that he had picked that eddie had picked it up like as a scrap of material maybe that they used to clean or whatever and was obviously they're not using
2: a blouse to clean
1: yeah and the service station owner was like adamant we have nothing like that that we would clean with like i closed the station that night i know what was there that wasn't there And, like, the blouse really couldn't pass as a cleaning rag anyway. It was, like, an unusual design. It was tiny. It was, like, looked like it was made to fit a very small woman. The material was silky. Like, not anything you would use for cleaning. Hmm. So, I feel like somebody should be able to easily identify this Mm -hmm. blouse. Like, more questions come to my mind now. Yeah. So, like, how did Eddie get this? I read nowhere where his sister had a shirt like this. Did somebody give it to Eddie to use? If so, who was that? Mm. Was it someone who maybe drove him to work? Was it his attacker that kind of realized, holy crap, I just murdered Eddie. And in a moment of regret, like gave that to Eddie to kind of help. Yeah. Like, how did he get this blouse? I feel like the blouse Mm. has so
2: many answers. Right. It has to have something to do with something.
1: Yeah. Whoever kind of like, did this. Was it the Amy Mahalovic case that like it was a yep. crazy green curtain? green curtain. Yep. Like somebody should recognize this blouse. Mm-hmm. Have police posted pictures of it? You know, know, I know that at first it was left like close to the vest. They weren't saying anything oh. about it. But then as they were like Eddie's case grew colder, they started releasing more information. And that was something that they released, but again, there's been so little info that I'm not hundred percent sure. I'm sure they've released photos. Wow. Like they would almost have to have. hmm But on February twentieth, nineteen ninety two, Eddie finally did pass away from the injuries he received on January twenty second, nineteen
2: ninety two. Wow. So he
1: suffered for nearly a month. Wow. Yeah. Very little has come forward as in, as far as information in Eddie's case. Crime Stopper said that on March nineteenth, two thousand seven, the Fayette County Sheriff William Laird the Fourth and a local author George Bragg approached the county commission requesting an increase in the standing reward in regards to Eddie's case, and. Everybody obviously wholeheartedly agreed to increase the reward amount for information. So it was increased from $5,000 to $20,000. Oh. Um, so, I mean, 2007 now is quite a long time ago, but obviously this small community still wants answers for what happened to somebody that was very loved in their community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, We typically have theories that we can talk about now, which I guess we sort of talked about as we went. But, like, I really don't have any theories about who would want to murder Eddie Brown.
2: Other than whoever's connected with this blouse, which hopefully has DNA on it.
1: I did read that they are testing the blouse for DNA, Um, I didn't read where they have said anything about results to that.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: But I'm telling you, the answers are in the blouse. The answers
1: are in the blouse. With the death of Eddie Brown, one community changed forever. Gone were the days of innocence from Kincaid, West Virginia. With the death of Eddie, I'm sure people began locking their doors again. Those who didn't own a firearm likely went out and bought one. People started questioning those who they once trusted. Could it have been you who killed Eddie, they might would think? Eddie left a lasting impression on the people of Kincaid, and if we learned anything from the life Eddie lived, it was to be a giver. I found this tribute to Eddie on the Kincaid West Virginia Facebook page and felt that it was more than fitting for today's closing. Quote, when I was growing up in the mountains of West Virginia in the early 60s, I knew a man by the name of Eddie Brown. Eddie worked in the service station next to my house. He didn't own a car, so he would walk to work. Every morning, he'd walk up the road beside the creek, past my house to open the garage, as we called it. And every evening, he'd return down the road, go across the creek and over the railroad tracks to home at the mouth of Camp Branch Hollow. Before leaving, he would always put half the station's money in one pocket and half in the other. He explained that if someone robbed him, they'd probably only take half the money. He seemed to me to be a bear of a man as he lumbered past my house in the early morning mist. Invariably, he would pause for a moment or two and turn back towards his house to survey the creek or the mountains before traveling on to the station. It was as if there was something important in those mountains that he was looking for. Each morning, he would greet us as we came to the station to wait for the school bus, and each afternoon, he was there to wave to us when we returned. He always made sure the station was open so he wouldn't have to wait out in the cold. He was always there to sell us pop and candy and tell us a joke or two. Eddie was always at the garage. I never saw him anywhere else. He had no wife or kids and lived with his parents. Rumor had it, he never left the creek except to go to the doctor. From my experience, the rumor was true. He never left the garage, even to get a haircut. The barber came to him instead. Many times I've seen him sitting behind the counter or beside the pot-bellied stove while the barber trimmed his hair. If there was one thing constant in the life of Loop Creek, it was that when you pulled into the service, Eddie would be there to greet you. When I was a kid, I never really thought anything about it. I was traveling through my hometown of Kincaid, now almost 25 years ago. A few things have changed in Kincaid, but Eddie was still manning the service pumps. The old station was now a hair salon, so Eddie had taken up the residence at another station a couple miles down the road. He still didn't own a car, and now walked three miles each day down the railroad tracks and back to work. He was now a man of his late 60s. He hadn't changed a bit in those 30 years. He was still the same old Eddie that I had known as a kid. He filled the tank with service, and I bought some candy and pop. He let me behind the counter to pick out the candy just like he did years ago. I was still the kid, and he was still the grown-up. I introduced him to my family, and we talked for a while before I left down the road to Charleston. That's the last time I saw Eddie Brown. They buried him yesterday. I wrote this at the time of his death. A month earlier, on his way to the station, Eddie was robbed and beaten severely with a crowbar. Even though he was injured badly, he still managed to make it to the station to open it. He never recovered from the beating. Ironically, Eddie was right all along. The robbers only took the money out of one of his pockets and left the rest. To this day, his murder is still unsolved. If by some small chance you're ever through Kincaid, West Virginia, stop at the service station, now abandoned for a while. Take the time to survey the beauty of Eddie's mountains, experience the tranquility of his creek, listen to the rhythm of the hills, and remember Eddie Brown. I Know I Will by Johnny Kincaid. If you have any information concerning the murder of Eddie Brown, please contact the Fayette County Sheriff's Department at 304 574 4126 or Crime Stoppers at 304 255 7867. Crime Stoppers will pay a reward up to $5,000 to the tipster who provides information that leads to an arrest of the persons who murdered Eddie Brown. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast. Or you can always email us suggestions to coffee and cases podcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon.
2: Stay together.
1: Stay safe. We'll, we'll see, see you next week. week.